Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Claire and Evelyn Williamson did practically everything together. The sisters were four years apart in age, Claire being the younger of the two, and had relied exclusively on each other for years. It might sound sweet, but the truth is, the girls didn't have much choice. Their father, George Williamson, had died the same year Claire was born, so Dora, as Evelyn was nicknamed in a play on her middle name, Dorothea, and her sister had been raised by their mother, Rosalie, and a governess named Margaret Conway. Lucky for all of them, George had been a British soldier and left Rosalie with some money to raise the girls. In the 1880 British census, Rosalie's status was listed as head of the household and her occupation as annuitant. In other words, she didn't have to work because she was paid an annual amount from her husband's pension. Rosalie lived until Dora was 20 and Claire 16. Then the girls were orphaned. These weren't their only brushes with death. Two of their siblings had also died. After their parents passed, they still had access to a lot of money thanks to their grandfather, Charles Williamson, so they never had to worry about being cared for financially. That didn't keep them from worrying, period, especially about their health. Losing both of your parents early in life will do that to a person. The Williamson sisters were seen as progressive, borderline eccentric. They were vegetarians. They didn't wear corsets. And the two were incredibly close, marching to the beat of their own quirky sisterly drum. This is Caitlin Dowdy, a mortician and author with a popular YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician. She released a video on this case in 2021 called The Doctor, the Mortician, and the Murder. Really, Claire and Dora's biggest concerns seem to fall into two categories, their health and mortality, and protecting themselves against gold-digging suitors. These two concerns merged in that they were hesitant to expose their vulnerabilities health-wise to male doctors of the era, which in turn made them thrilled to find an advertisement posted by a woman doctor in Washington state. Claire wrote the doctor and told of some general health concerns. Dora would get hit by rheumatism on occasion, while Claire's woes were of the womanly variety and was thrilled to get a response with some holistic tips. Within months, the sisters had traveled to the United States and rented an apartment near the doctor's sanitarium in Olala, Washington. Within months of that, one of them would be dead and the other barely clinging to life, and the sensational trial that followed would make headlines worldwide and expose the dangerously unregulated world of medical quackery. While the headlines surrounding this story dominated newspapers in 1911 and 1912, the tale actually began more than 40 years earlier on a frigid December day in 1867. That's when 26-year-old Susanna Burfield gave birth to her first child, a girl she sometimes called Lena, though usually Linda. 
Susanna was married to a man about 14 years older than she, a Civil War veteran named Montgomery who had fought for the Union. Looking at old land in genealogy records, it looks like Montgomery had been married once before to a girl who died at age 20, either during or soon after childbirth. The family tree is a bit muddled, in fact, because census data show a house full of Burfield surnamed children before Linda came along, so either Montgomery had been a busy soldier, or he also had far younger siblings living with him. Whatever the case, Susanna bore Montgomery six more children after her first, meaning that Linda grew up in a full house on a farm in Carver, Minnesota. I'd love to know what life was like within the walls of that house because, as you'll soon come to understand, Linda developed some absolutely bonkers philosophies. It appears these were born largely of practices that today wouldn't seem unusual at all, but for 19th century America was pretty revolutionary. For example, according to author Greg Olson, Montgomery and Susanna fed the family a vegetarian diet. They were more proactive about health issues than was the norm of the time. That might have led to some dubious treatments. From Olson's book, quote, Linda traced the beginnings of her search for a better way to the medical doctor who called yearly on the Burfield children. Montgomery, foolishly, Linda would later say, had decided his children needed the care of a doctor. No one was sick, but he had bought the idea that medical men of the day could ward off potential problems with their black bag of tricks. Montgomery did it out of love, out of the idea that it was a prudent measure. The father adored his children, especially Linda. The doctor convinced the Burfields that their children were silent, uncomplaining victims of potentially fatal intestinal parasites. Blue mass pills were prescribed as treatment for the malady that had not appeared evident in the slightest. The cure brought horrific results, frequent bouts of vomiting and diarrhea. Over and over, through the course of several years, the treatment was tried, end quote. Linda would later say that the pills she'd been prescribed irreversibly damaged her intestines so badly that she began resorting to daily enemas. Now, at age 18, Linda's life changed in two dramatic ways. She got married to a man named Erwin A. Perry, and about a month after that, learned that her father died. Montgomery had been hauling logs to a mill in the town of Evergreen, according to a newspaper brief about his death in March of 1896. The story said that the load tipped over and a log, quote, fell upon his breast and, quote, killing him instantly. Linda didn't seem too keen on being married. Irwin came from money, but he himself seemed easily distracted. Over the years, I can find his occupation listed as janitor, as travel agent, as teamster. Linda, meanwhile, began transforming herself. She started with her name. Though she'd married Irwin under her sometimes handle of Lena, she switched permanently to Linda, and then again from L-Y-N-D-A to L-I-N-D-A. She adopted her surname of Burfield, B-E-R-F-I-E-L-D, as her middle name, but changed that spelling too. I mention this because these types of shifts were easier back before driver's licenses and social security numbers were issued, and Linda's ability to change names on a whim made it easy to reinvent herself as she saw fit. 
Aside from her name change, Linda also transformed herself professionally. She began to study holistic medicine and osteopathy, and by her own telling, was drawn specifically to the teachings of Edward H. Dewey. She read a book called The True Science of Living, The New Gospel of Health. This is a snippet from a show called Healthcare Horrors by Atlas Med Staff. The book was about the natural approach to healing, and it was about rigorous fasting and how it could heal the body. Dewey had become a believer in the power of fasting after he had taken on a typhoid fever case in 1877. Traditional treatment had failed the patient time and again, so Dewey decided to let nature take its course, which to him apparently meant starving the patient for days on end. Dewey would later write that after 34 days of fasting, the patient recovered. And from then on, Dewey was an evangelist spreading his gospel, which focused on the therapeutic benefits of the fast. Between that book and Dewey's follow-up, called A New Era for Women, Health Without Drugs, Linda found herself a mentor. She wrote to Dewey and the two connected, though as Greg Olson writes in his book, Starvation Heights, the two disagreed on a few points. There's no delicate way to say this without sounding ridiculous, so I'm gonna go the blunt way and at least lean into the ridiculousness. Linda believed that natural pooping was for suckers. Enemas were way better, she argued, referring to them as internal baths. Dewey thought that normal pooping was just fine, thank you. The two would never see eye to eye on the subject, but they would remain close and Linda would credit Dewey's mentorship with her career. Dewey wrote four books in all, from what I can find, and they were released in quick succession between 1895 and 1900. It's easy to see why he spoke to Linda specifically. One of his books focused on alcoholism, which Linda railed against as well. She hated when her husband drank. The timing of Dewey's last book is noteworthy because it's soon after that that Linda wrote her first published work. In February of 1902, she had a piece published in the Minneapolis Daily Times in which she dubs that city the, quote, Paris of America, end quote. It's not a compliment. Under the byline, Linda Burfield Perry, she wrote that the city was plagued with saloons filled with underage men. She claimed that she had worked in the slums of Chicago, San Francisco, and countless other cities, and none were as vile and low as right here in Minneapolis. She described theater performances on Washington Avenue. Quote, One of the actresses came onto the stage all but nude. The ribald songs, the lewd words, vociferously applauded, made me almost lose faith in the inherent integrity of man. Back of the stage, the scenes were too vile to describe, and it stirred my anger to a boiling point to see a policeman in uniform, supposed to be on duty guarding the city, one of the principals in this disgusting debauchery. End quote. She sounds fun, doesn't she? It's worth noting, though, that the idea of fasting and this pearl-clutching at party behavior go hand in hand. People like Linda and Edward Dewey felt that all self-indulgence was not only sinful, but unhealthy. To them, there was no difference in drinking to excess and eating when not hungry. It was all an entryway for disease. That's why they touted fasting. Dewey believed diseases were the result of overeating, and fasting was the cure. 
This is from Haunted History Seattle, which pointed out that Dewey's ideas had a lot of popular support at the time. Remember, prohibition is right around the corner at this point. Still, Dewey's beliefs weren't much accepted by true medical experts who said moderate fasts were beneficial when performed under proper medical supervision. But Dewey took the principles of fasting to an irrational extreme. So did his successor. After her, Minneapolis is the worst op-ed ran. And by the way, she predictably pissed off city leaders who were like, hey, we're not that bad. She next appeared in the city's Star Tribune newspaper for supposedly curing a man of his paralysis. The headline was Gets Health by Fasting. It told the story of G.H. Tuthill, a man who had suffered blood clots in his brain that left him paralyzed and unable to speak for six years. According to the article, Tuthill met quote-unquote doctor Linda Burfield Perry, who advised him to stop eating. He did so for 20 days, and while it was tough going at first, the story insisted that he'd been cured completely. Dr. Linda is quoted in the story, quote, Having been relieved of the strain put upon it by the assimilation of food, the system of this patient was given a chance to do extra work in absorbing clots that had lodged in the brain. In my opinion, if the patient can in the future abstain from rich, heavy foods and live temperately in every way, there will be no return of the paralysis or of the conditions which led to it, end quote. This story seemed to mark a turning point in Linda's career. For starters, it asserted she was a medical professional, when in truth, she'd never undergone any official study outside of reading Dewey's books. At the time, in the state of Washington, people who practiced alternative medicine were allowed to claim the title doctor. Secondly, this story raised her profile. Potential patients learned about the supposed medical miracle she'd performed on Tuthill and began seeking her out. Some of those patients died, and though some family members sounded alarms with authorities, all of those patients had gone to Linda willingly, so law enforcers felt there was nothing they could do. After all, if people were sick enough that they were willing to starve themselves for weeks on end, how could you prove that it was the treatment, rather than the initial illness, that had killed them? Around this time, Linda's marriage collapsed. I can't say for sure what happened on that front, but here's what I know. Linda accused her husband, Erwin Perry, of desertion. And after she won her divorce on those grounds, she shipped her two children to her mother to be raised while Linda pursued her alternative medicine career. I find this a little ironic because in that op-ed piece she wrote about Minneapolis sucking hard, she also wrote about how it was up to mothers to raise their kids right just months before she herself shipped her kids off to someone else to be raised. Anyway, it doesn't seem that Erwin Perry was likely a model husband and father. I found that later in life, he made headlines after he admitted setting a business on fire and testified as the state star witness against his accomplice slash lover in that case. After her divorce, Linda opened an office in Minneapolis and began treating patients in earnest. She also met and fell in love with a guy named Samuel Hazard, who's described in one news story as, quote, six feet tall and a perfect Gibson model, end quote. In 1904, Samuel and Linda married, but there was a problem. Samuel was already married to two other women, in fact. 
He'd married one woman named Agnes, whom he abandoned and left with a mountain of debt. These weren't simply unpaid bills, by the way. Hazard was wanted for outright theft. He'd borrow money, saying it was for something like his dad's surgery, and then spend it on himself and just disappear. Or he would write checks to himself, get them cashed, and vanish. His debtors included some high-profile entities, such as the U.S. Army, in which he'd served in the late 1890s. To avoid paying, he did what Linda Burfield had done. He changed names. As Samuel Hargrave, he married a well-to-do senator's daughter named Viva Fitzpatrick. She thought they were an enviable couple, until he announced that actually they'd never officially been married, and oh, by the way, I've since gotten married to Dr. Linda Burfield. Hazard was charged with bigamy. The trial that followed made dozens of headlines nationwide, with the stories pitting Viva and Linda against each other. In the end, Hazard was convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. Viva stood by her man and fought for his early release, only to succeed and watch him head straight into the arms of Linda Burfield. Not surprisingly, Linda and Samuel did not stay in Minnesota, where the bigamy trial had been standing room only. They moved to Washington, which had only become a state in 1889, from infamous crime locations. They purchased a building in Seattle, and then they also had their home in a town called Awala. Linda ended up making her practice inside the home, and they ended up calling it Wilderness Heights. This was around 1906. While the couple settled in Washington, Linda began seeing more and more patients while also writing a book that would soon catch the eye of a pair of sisters wanting to be proactive about their health. The book was called Fasting for the Cure of Disease. Claire and Dora Williamson had been traveling the world when, in September of 1910, the sisters noticed a small advertisement in a Seattle daily newspaper touting a book by Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. Claire wrote to request a copy, saying that she and Sister Dora were in poor health. The truth was that Dora sometimes felt unwell. Her knees could get achy, for example. But in hindsight, it sounds more like she had her own mortality issues that no doubt came from being orphaned. Claire's letter described Dora as having bloodshot, goopy eyes and swollen joints. Within days, they received a package from Dr. Linda that included information on the Hazards Institute of Natural Therapeutics, a sanitarium in the country. Though it was in a town pronounced Olala, the way it was spelled made it look like Ulala. If you're curious about my pronunciation there, I'd like to mention that I called a nearby city hall to ask. Olala itself is unincorporated. Anyway, the sisters were intrigued by this place called Wilderness Heights. If they'd known that locals would soon be dubbing it Starvation Heights on account of the emaciated people neighbors would see on the property, Maybe they would have been more leery, but they didn't, and so they weren't. Now, their timing for checking out the sanitarium seemed good, because both women had plans for big trips after visiting North America. Claire had enrolled in a kindergarten instruction course, according to Greg Olson's book, while Dora planned to visit an aunt in Australia. It would be one of the rare times the sisters would separate, and they figured undergoing Dr. Linda's treatment beforehand would bolster them for their journeys. At first, they submitted to the treatments from afar. Dr. Linda had told them to limit meals to vegetable broth. 
but the temptation of real food proved too great, so they wanted to go to the Hazards Institute. The only problem was that the sanitarium was still under construction. No matter, Linda told them, you can rent a nearby apartment, and as soon as the place is ready for patients, I'll transfer you here. And so it was settled. The Williamson sisters headed to Washington in February of 1911. They did not tell family members back home in England where they were headed. As Claire wrote in a letter to a doctor, quote, Unfortunately, we cannot tell them we are going to stop in Seattle to do a fast, as already they disapprove of our way of living. In fact, we are not mentioning it to anyone, end quote. Dora would later say that she and Claire were borderline giddy upon meeting the doctor with whom they'd long been corresponding. Caitlin Dowdy again. Dr. Hazard was imposing in every way. 43 years old, tall, fit, wearing a plain white dress that resembled a nurse's uniform. She cut a fearsome figure, the type of woman that vulnerable people were desperate to impress. When the sisters arrived in Hazard's office, she wasted no time in diagnosing them as sick, sick, sickety sick. Dora asked whether they should maybe have a physical exam before jumping to that conclusion. Dr. Linda said, nah, there's no point. You do the fast first, and then I'll examine you. It sounds like Claire was more impressed than Dora, but Dora always worked hard to keep Claire happy, so she didn't push back. Then Dr. Linda regaled them with anecdote after anecdote of her medical successes and her prominence in Minneapolis, conveniently excluding the legal troubles involving starved patients and missing jewelry she left behind to go west. The sisters were dazzled. Treatment began. The sisters got tomato and asparagus broth and a half cup of juice daily. They also got daily enemas, sometimes excruciatingly long in duration, we're talking hours here, and they were given these supposed massages that really were more like pummelings. She would actually use her fists and she would beat on the patient's back and forehead with her fists. They were insanely painful. When Claire and Dora arrived, they weighed about 120 and 110 pounds, respectively. As the treatment began, the weight fell off their bodies at a shocking pace. Meanwhile, Dr. Linda had earned a dubious reputation for herself thanks to other patients that had been, or were then still, in her care. In 1910, three of her patients were known to have died, including a Louis Raider who'd once worked as state treasurer. On May 30th, 1911, just weeks after the Williamson sisters' arrival to Washington, Dr. Linda lost patient Frank Southard. Southard had been a prominent lawyer in Spokane, so his death made the front page of the Spokesman Review. The story read, quote, Southard, who had been an athlete in his youth, was a sturdy man until a few months ago. A year ago, he decided upon the advice of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, who endeavored to cure by starvation, to reduce his weight, then 225 pounds, to 155. Following out Dr. Hazard's instructions, he almost discontinued taking food. The fast was successful in cutting off the 70 pounds, but in the meantime, kidney trouble set in. Dr. Hazard ordered a new fast, which Southard undertook. Soon, he was scarcely able to walk, end quote. He was 46 years old when he died and left behind a wife and two daughters. There were other victims too, and I don't want their names forgotten. Maude Whitney, Earl Erdman, C.A. Harrison, Ivan Flux, 
To be clear, not everyone who went to Dr. Linda for treatment died. That would have been a foolish business enterprise to try and sustain. Some people felt better after fasting and spread word of the treatment. But anyone paying attention might have noticed a pattern. People who had come to her from overseas were more likely to die than people who lived in the United States. Not only that, but the richer the patient, the less the odds of survival. The Williamson sisters didn't know this when they entered Linda's orbit, and soon after their arrival, they were too sick to do any digging. They started having trouble walking and then standing. They'd faint so often that they would barely even notice. It was so common that it stopped being alarming. Some of the nurses Linda had hired began to get concerned. A woman named Nellie Sherman would tend to them in their emaciated forms. She grew so concerned that she quietly reached out to another osteopath to ask advice. Dr. Augusta Brewer had once seen Claire and adjusted her spine. Sherman told Brewer that the women were dreadfully weak, being fed only broth and juice. Give them more food, Nellie, Brewer said. They ought to have more food. But Sherman knew the women would refuse. So strong was the hold that Dr. Linda had on them. Brewer said the treatment was all wrong. She told Sherman, quote, You know I do not approve of Linda Hazard's methods. She is not a graduate of any osteopathic school. She doesn't know what she is doing, end quote. Notice she didn't call her Dr. Hazard, only Linda Hazard. By April of 1911, both sisters were beyond delirious. Dr. Linda finally had them transferred to the sanitarium. The men who lifted their stretchers into separate ambulances guessed they each weighed maybe 60 pounds. Days later, Claire wrote a pained-looking letter to her childhood governess, a woman I mentioned earlier named Margaret Conway. In the letter, she amended her will to give the Hazards Institute 25 pounds of sterling a year. She also directed that her remains were to be cremated by Dr. Linda. Conway headed to Washington at once. When she arrived, Samuel Hazard greeted her. After a bit of chit-chat, he gave her grave news. Miss Clare has died, he said, and Miss Dora is helplessly insane. I am sorry. The rest of the day was a blur to Conway. She met Dr. Linda, who explained that Claire and Dora had arrived to her sanitarium near death. She said that when she conducted Claire's autopsy, she found that her liver was like stone. Her blood had turned to powder. The only healthy organs inside of her had been her lungs, she said. Then Dr. Linda showed Conway a dead woman wearing Claire's dress. It did not look like Claire at all, not just because it was skinnier than Conway remembered, but the hair was too light, the hands unfamiliar. Conway didn't think it was Claire at all, but figured she must be in too much shock to recognize the woman she herself had helped raise. Conway was then allowed to see Dora, who was little more than a skeleton. Her skin was tight and transparent, her bones poked through. Conway managed to convince a reluctant Dr. Linda to let her assist in caring for Dora. Convincing Dora to eat anything more than the two broths per day proved more difficult. Dora was absolutely convinced, nowadays we would probably use the term brainwashed, to believe that the weakness and sickness she was experiencing wasn't because of the fasting, but because of the underlying illness the fasting was supposed to be expelling from her body. But bit by bit, Dora did start to eat, and she began to get a bit of strength back. Conway, meanwhile, plotted their escape. 
She secretly telegrammed Dora's uncle, her mother's brother, John Herbert. He had met Linda Hazard shortly after Claire's death and had, like Conway, been confused upon seeing the body. The corpse looked nothing like the Claire he knew, and he worried that the body might belong to another woman altogether, perhaps because the real Claire's body was so emaciated that it would have been too shocking for the family to endure. Herbert had tried to get Dora to leave with him then, but Dora insisted she was fine. This time, though, with Conway in his corner, Herbert was less deferential to his niece, who he now realized was being held against her will, even if she didn't know it. The best plan is to remove my niece at once, he told Dr. Linda, who coolly responded that, actually, Dora had appointed her as her guardian because of her weakened mental state, so Linda didn't have to do anything if she didn't want to. Still, instead of forcing Dora to stay, she offered something of a compromise. If you settle Dora's bill, you can take her with you. Then she handed him an invoice for $2,000. That would be some $60,000 in today's money. Herbert balked, but ultimately paid it. It was more important that Dora get out of there as quickly as possible. As soon as she did, her health improved little by little. Once her wits returned, she began to see that she'd been conned. She, Herbert, and Conway forged an alliance with British Vice Counsel Lucien Agassiz. When he met Dora, her hair still falling out in clumps, He was appalled, and as he dug deeper and deeper into the hazard's past, he realized that there had been other British citizens to die in her care. Lucien made it his mission to bring Dr. Linda to justice. In January 1912, the murder trial against Linda Burfield Hazard began. It was by no means a slam dunk case. For starters, it had been tough for British authorities to get Washington state officials on board because they weren't sure if a jury would be sympathetic to rich people who had not only entered the treatment willingly, but who literally paid for what Linda Hazard provided them. It's hard to argue that someone's being held against his or her will when they wrote letters asking to be admitted into the place, right? Dr. Linda, meanwhile, was quick to tell anyone who would listen that she was being persecuted not just for pursuing non-traditional medicine, but for being a successful woman in a male-dominated field. Linda's defense team told the press that the medical establishments were conspiring against her as she was able to cure patients they were unable to help. This is from a show called Briefcase. They also maintained that the patients that came to her were already ill, so those that died would have died anyway, even if they had sought more conventional medical practices. The defense also called on witnesses who had undergone Dr. Linda's treatment and swore by it. Even one witness whose wife died in Linda's care testified that he didn't feel the fasting was responsible for it. It was the underlying illness, he insisted. The prosecution, however, produced witnesses who were medical experts and who discredited her practices. They also had large amounts of evidence that proved that Linda benefited from the death of her patients, including forged signatures on legal documents. They eloquently told the courts that this amounted to financial starvation. Prosecutors had hoped for a murder conviction, but after brief deliberation, jurors came back with manslaughter instead. This was still a victory as far as Dora Williamson was concerned, 
Dr. Linda was sentenced to 10 years in prison, though she would serve less than two. She was paroled in December of 1915. Six months later, Washington Governor Ernest Lister granted her a pardon, for which I found no clear explanation. It was granted on the condition that she leave America, which she and her husband Samuel did. They went to New Zealand and brought their quackery with them, publishing a book called Diet in Disease and Systemic Cleansing while treating so-called patients with fasting. They did brisk enough business that they were able to buy back so-called Starvation Heights, and though Dr. Linda was no longer able to claim the doctor moniker anymore, she still identified herself as a physician in the 1920 census. She occasionally faced charges for violating medical practice laws. She was nothing if not persistent. In 1925, she was arrested in connection with yet another death. This time, the victim was Leonard Ritter, who went from 168 pounds to 100 pounds thanks to an 84-day fast. Linda was convicted, but her punishment was only a $100 fine. She got no jail time at all. Ten years later, the sanitarium burned to the ground. Three years after that, Linda fell ill. She decided that this time it was she who needed her fasting treatment. She fed herself only broth and juice and had her husband Sam assist with her daily internal baths. She starved to death in Olala on June 24, 1938. Dora Williamson outlived her, though her life after the trial was still steeped in sorrow. In 1914, she married the Reverend Wyndham Allen Chaplin. The two settled in Gloucester, England. Just three months after their marriage, on August 29th, the 44-year-old Reverend accidentally drowned in the Frampton-on-Severn. Dora, however, went on to travel the world and write. I found a book referenced in a British newspaper written by Dorothea Chaplin that seems to be hers. It was called Matter, Myth, and Spirit, and a blurb about it described it as a study of folklore that drew from every quarter of the globe, and she finds parallels and resemblances in the ancient customs and rites in places as far distant from each other as Scotland, India, and South America. Her interest in medical treatment seemed not to have waned either. One of her books was called Some Aspects of Hindu Medical Treatment. Dora lived until January 2, 1945, dying at age 72 in Sussex, England. According to probate records, she had no family when she died. Her estate was bequeathed to the Mercantile Bank of India Limited. I researched the story first as a guest on Rabia Chaudhry's excellent podcast, Nighty Night. It was the true case upon which the fictional story called Undying Hunger was based. Rabia encouraged me to do a deeper dive, though, so I did. I read Greg Olson's book, Starvation Heights, as well as contemporary news coverage, and enjoyed a few too many YouTube videos about ghost sightings on the land where Starvation Heights once stood. Caitlin Doughty's Ask a Mortician episode on the case was also a big help. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, 
For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.